Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hopelessly devoted to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. That is my super sky point to the late, great Olivia Newton-John. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. It's getting bigger and better every week. If you like to talk wrestling, uh, whatever, if you have a question, we're happy to answer it. Join the group. Uh, Twitter, if you want to follow me on Twitter, where I mostly stick to wrestling, um, just search for John McAdam and ha- follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And with that, I want to greet the Stick to Wrestling studio audience here in Nashville, New Hampshire. Guys, thanks for coming out. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are great. I want to bring on popular returning guest, Chris Zoha. Chris, thank you for coming on again. Uh, John, thank you for having me. It's been a while, so I appreciate being brought back. Thank you. Hey, no problem. And I asked Chris, I'm like, do you want, is there something like, I don't know, a, a show topic you would like to do? And Chris said, yeah, I want to talk about Kevin Nash. And I'm like, okay, I'll talk about Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash, a controversial and a once galvanizing, but now somewhat polarizing figure in wrestling. Chris, uh, let me give it to you. Why did you want to talk about Kevin Nash? Uh, now, let me stole before. I, I mean, I cut you off. Like, as I answer the question, I never really had anything against Kevin Nash, but he was a, and one big reason is because I'm a big Tennessee Volunteers fan and he played center there and he had a, a physical confrontation with the coach. Uh, what was that jerk's name? But I didn't like him. And, so, but we, why did you want to have a Kevin Nash episode? He's not my favorite of all time, but he is one of my favorites for sure. And also, I know that, the, he, that like you said, you use the perfect word as polarizing. Um, you either like Nash or you really don't like him at all. Because um, I always see like people making the jokes about tearing his quad and blah, 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 and the click and this, that, and the other. And, I, and all that stuff is true. But I also think that there's a lot to be said for him in a positive way. And I want to make this clear. Him and I, we're not related or anything like that. We're not friends. I just, I, I'm the uh, Kevin Nash apologist, if you want me to call me that. Okay. I have been around Kevin Nash exactly once. He, to me, he came across as the exact same guy he was on Monday Night Nitro and Thursday Thunder, whatever. By the way, the coach's name was Don DeVoe, and I have no idea why Kevin Nash would want to play for this guy because Don DeVoe was about the most buttoned up coach in in college basketball history doesn't seem like a fit but uh i mean he was a funny guy he was laid back he was a little bit overserved, but whatever so were the rest of us but yeah i mean you know you mentioned to me chris online that he gets a lot of shit from the online wrestling community he got a lot of shit in the newsletters for a variety of reasons so let's talk about his at your word, disastrous WWF title reign, which I don't think you really think is disastrous. Right. I think so. When when he won the title, I was like, I was twenty, so I was just about to like move out of my house. So I was kind of like in a different like I was just in a different place in my life, um, where I it's hard to explain. I tended to like just about anything that was going on wrestling. So I was just so happy to be finally getting out of my house, um, but. When Nash won the belt, I or Diesel at the time, I felt like it was, it's hard to say, it was kind of a changing from, like, Bret, who I love Bret Hart, and they just did the transitional champion of Bob Backlund, and with Diesel winning the belt, my first thought was like, okay, who's he going to defend it against? And, like, his first title defense is against Bret, which he goes to a draw, which usually that's not a good sign. And it seemed like there was just a, they were having a hard time giving him good opponents like eventually he wrestled Mabel which that was atrocious um Sid which looks good on paper but their matches weren't exactly great I feel like his roster of opponents was kind of limited at that time other than like Brett and Sean who were obviously gonna be good opponents for him well I mean 
Diesel or Nash, whatever we're calling him. I mean, I remember when the WWF brought him in, right? And I heard that they had big plans for this guy. Vince saw a lot of potential with him. That's why he put him with Shawn Michaels and kind of sort of kept him out of the ring for a little while. Because, I mean, let's face it, he's legit six foot ten. He's a bodybuilder. He's a good looking guy. And Vince obviously. You know, that was attracted to that. He wanted that for the WWF. So, I mean, I like I said, I heard basically as soon as, oh, yeah, they're bringing him in and they're going to they have big plans for him. Yeah. And all, and they all really once he turned babyface and won the belt, they really did a lot to change his character. Whereas before he was kind of like the brooding, badass, kick ass guy. And then he wins the belt and he's dressed like Santa and he's singing Jingle Bells or whatever it was he did at Titan Towers. So they, they really I don't want to say emasculated him. But they really emasculated him to kind of fit that corporate WWF Titan world champion type thing. Well, you, you kind of have to. I mean, well, or at least at the th- at the time, I thought you kind of had to. One thing I give the WWF credit for, and I, I'll, I'll give Nash credit for something in a minute. When they had Lex Luger in 1993 as the next Hulk Hogan, I've said this before, they gave him the worst push imaginable. No one was getting into that whole red, white, and blue Lex Express candy-ass baby-faced thing, okay? I mean, Nirvana was the most popular band in the United States, and here's what you're pushing. It was ridiculous. Nash, I thought the WWF gave the right push to her. At least, uh, yeah, I'll call it the right push because – he he couldn't be, or at least at, t- at the time I thought, a badass biker heel. So they poured a little bit of water on him, but in my opinion, not too much. Right. No, I see that. I, I, I can believe that. And you'll know, talk about back-to-back shocks. Bob Backlund wins the WWF Championship at the 1994 Survivor Series, which I thought was the most impossible thing ever. I mean, if someone had told me in 1989 Bob Backlund was going to be WWF champion again under any circumstances, I would have thought they were, you know, beyond crazy. But then next shock, Backlund wins the belt on Thursday, then Diesel wins the belt on Monday. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. And I'm like, well, here we go. I was told he was getting a big push. He's getting the Hulk Hogan push now. Oh, yeah. And I remember because Brendan lost about the backland. And then I think it was the following that following Saturday, maybe after Diesel won the belt. And whoever was on the show, Todd Pettengill or whatever, he's like, we're going to show you Diesel and Bob Backlund in its entirety. I'm like, holy crap, this is going to be great. I'm thinking it's going to be like this 20-minute whatever. And it's over at eight seconds. I'm like, oh, that's why they showed the whole match. It all makes sense now. They they never showed the whole match. Even, I mean, even when Backlund beat superstar Billy Graham, they had to join it in progress. They barely showed any of the Bru- of Bruno losing the, the title. But yeah, I mean, so once again, I'm like, I, I wasn't told. I Someone called me like that week and said, hey, you know, Diesel won the belt in Madison Square Garden. And I was like, no way. And I was like, okay, here comes the push I heard about. I don't think he did poorly as champion. I don't think he did particularly well either, but I mean, Chris, you know, the wrestling business as a whole was on its ass and had been on its ass for three or four years. I mean, you know, what do you want one guy to do? Absolutely. And there was nobody at the, in my opinion, at that point, there was nobody they were going to be able to put the belt on to really like have an upswing in business. I mean, just like you said, the wrestling business in and of itself was just on its ass at that point. It had been since I think like 91, 92, ever since the steroid thing became like front page news. So to, to put any blame on one person, no matter who it is, you can't put the blame on one person just because they're on top of the card. The whole, nobody was drawing at that point. Not a lot, at least. No, and, and WWF under Diesel, with Diesel as champion, was no worse than it was with Bret Hart as champion. Bret wasn't drawing either. Ric Flair got a lot of heat uh, in 89. Oh, Ric Flair's not drawing. Nothing is drawing. Wrestling was just down. Yep, absolutely. I agree 100%. All right, let's talk about a little bit about his move to WCW, which was a huge deal at the time for a number of reasons. Number one, the money he got from WCW was just out of this world compared to what everyone else was making. I mean, Eric Bischoff just shattered the salary scale. I've got two different 
annual incomes for Kevin Nash. One was 800000 a year, which was staggering in 1985. The other one was $1.2 million a year, which, again, is just obviously, you know, 150% more incredible. And, I mean, your thoughts on that, Chris? I think that to make WCW the number one company, which it eventually became for a short period of time, they needed to get guys like Nash and Hall over there because with the, the roster WCW had, and I was always, and I've said this before, I was always more of a WCW slash NWA guy than WWF, even though I like WWF. But they needed to do something to really shake things up to really get more people watching the show and bring in Hall and Nash over there and positioning them almost, not almost, positioning them like they were like invading the company from WWF. That was the only, I don't want to say that was the only way, but that was definitely probably one of the only ways they were really going to make a big dent in WW, into the WWF and their dominance of professional wrestling. I think Bischoff gets a lot of shit from a lot of people, and a lot of it's justified. But the way he brought in Hall and Nash was absolutely perfect, in my opinion. It was absolutely perfect, because I had friends that did not watch wrestling, or if they did watch wrestling, they only watched WWF, and when they saw what was going on in WCW, they were all watching Nitro at that point, and they were just like, ah, screw WWF, we're just going to watch Nitro. So, it, it was a bit, it, it was, it changed the momentum of professional wrestling, and you still kind of feel it to this day, honestly. It, absolutely. I mean, Vince, you know, when Eric started giving guaranteed contracts, Vince started giving downside guarantees, before Nash got to WCW, WWF was guaranteeing, get ready for this, $25 for the TV tapings. And that's it. After that, you got paid whatever Vince McMahon dictated you got paid. Yeah. And, and you know, let me say this. I thought, number one, like you said, it was booked perfectly. I came in, I guess my creative juices weren't exactly flowing in 1995 because I figured, okay, you're going to bring these guys in for a couple, maybe three pay-per-views each to feed Hulk Hogan. And that was not it. They came up with something that absolutely changed the wrestling world, the NWO. Yep. And just like you said, I just figured like, okay, they're going to build till build toward Diesel against Hogan. I didn't know what they were going to call him. I knew it wouldn't be Diesel. I had no idea what their plans were. But I just figured, just like you said, they were just going to feed him to Hogan, and then then they go down the card or whatever. I had no idea that 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 they were planning an uh, invasion angle without really calling it one. And it was like I said, it it, it changed everything, and it, it changed people's viewing habits of professional wrestling, and it also really started the upswing in wrestling popularity because you could talk about like Steve Austin, who was absolutely one of my favorites of all time, and his ascension to the top of the card, but. They were already on wrestling in itself was already on a big upswing because of primarily the NWO starting in 96. And then by 98, wrestling was just insane. Everybody was wearing NWO or Austin 316 or whatever. It was it was so hugely popular back then. You could not go out. And I am serious when I say this. You could could not go out in 1996, 1997 without seeing someone more like probably like 98. Sorry about that. You could not go out without seeing someone in a wrestling shirt, whether it be an Austin shirt, an NWO shirt, an ECW shirt. And now I see someone in a wrestling shirt maybe once a year. But one big thing that Eric Bischoff did, like and like you said, Eric gets a hard time from a lot of people, and sometimes it's justified. But he handled this really well because when Hall and Nash jumped from the WWF to WCW, it was unprecedented. Ric Flair went back when it was time for him to go back, but that didn't feel like a real jump. The whole time the wrestling war, since it had started in 1984, the questions people would ask me would be, when is Ric Flair going to WCW? When's Lex Luger going? When, actually, Luger was another jump. I'll, I'll say that, but National felt bigger. Um, you know, when is Sting going to the WWF? No one ever asked me, when's Roddy Piper going to WCW? When's Hulk Hogan going? It was strictly a one-way street. And by Eric Bischoff starting to pick off some of the WWF's top stars, that makes a difference, especially... If you are, I mean, Eric, I, and there, here's another thing I've always give, given Eric credit for. Eric saw 
WCW as a television product. He didn't see it. He saw it less as a touring thing. And he saw it as, okay, I'm paying, let's call it a million dollars a year. Let's, let's split the two down the middle, right? He figures he's paying Kevin Nash 20 grand a week to be on Nitro and to be on pay-per-views. Now, and he figured $20,000 to appear on a television show was not expensive by television, uh, you know, by their salary scale. And I thought that was really smart of him. Okay, you know, thirty-five grand a week for Hall and Nash, and all of a sudden, a lot more people are watching. It was a really good investment. Yep, and I think Bischoff, he also just changed people's perspective of WCW in general, whereas they always looked at WWF as the show and the place you want to be, which really it is. But they were also now able to look at WCW and say, okay, if I work for Vince, I may make this much. But if I go to work for WCW, I know I'm going to make this much. So they're going to go with what what they know for sure. And I think, and just as fans, we got to see bigger stars go to WCW instead of vice versa. Well, I mean, it wasn't just it wasn't just the guaranteed money; it was the money itself. I mean, guys were making top guys were making like uh, two hundred fifty, three hundred grand in the WWF. And when I first heard about the offer that Nash got, and again, I heard eight hundred thousand dollars in nineteen ninety five. I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" There, you know, that's an amazing amount of money. It, it just shattered the salary scale in pro wrestling. Yep, and, and I heard that number too, or something around there. And also, they were also working a lot less than they were in WWF. So whereas they go to WCW, they work TV, they do a pay per view, maybe they do one house show, maybe, and they're making substantially more than they're making WWF and working a heck of a lot less. So you can't fault them for that. Totally can't fault him for that. They they did work house shows, but they didn't work all of the house shows. I remember I used to get uh, WCW Worldwide. It was no longer on my cable system, so I used to trade for tapes for it. And they were advertising a show. I want to say this was 97 or 98 in San Francisco. And the main event was uh, Diamond Dallas Page against Booker T. Now, that might sound really good in 2022. In 97, I'm like, okay, you're putting two mid-card guys, which they were at the time, in the main event at a major arena and I don't, you know, I was like, what are they doing? People aren't going to come out to a big arena to, to see the, the middle of the card guys. They want to see Nash. They want to see Hogan. They want to see Hall. Right. And that's the flip side of Eric Bischoff when he signs guys to contracts like this. When it comes to booking a house show, you're kind of limited with the top stars you can use because you've already told these guys, hey, you don't have to work this house show. So that, that's the negative of perhaps Eric Bischoff and his uh, negotiating uh, tactics. Now, let me tell you why I why I think something Nash did was beyond genius, okay? He gets, we think, an $800,000 offer from, the w, from WCW, which more than doubles, more, way more than doubles what he was making in the WWF. And instead of just saying, yeah, give me the pen, I'll sign, Nash says, wait a minute. I don't know if it was Nash or if he had an agent or whatever. He fo- if, if he had an agent, he followed the advice. Nash says, all right, 800 grand sounds good, but what if wrestling really takes off? And what if by the end of this contract, $800,000 isn't that much money? How about we put a stipulation in my contract where I always have to be at least the third highest paid uh, wrestler in WCW? So basically, Hogan's number one. I'll give you wiggle room to sign another star, but after that, I get taken care of. And boy, did he get taken care of. The wrestling business exploded. Bischoff kept signing guys, and Nash's salary went higher and higher. I, I mean, almost by the week. Yeah, I think him and, him and Hall may have had similar deals. I, again, I don't have insider info, but I think they had similar deals. But I mean, like I said, I mean, he's not a dumb guy, and I don't know if that was his call or his attorney or a little bit of both. But you, you again, that that's a very smart plan on his part. I got to give him a lot of credit for that. I mean, the story I heard was, you know, Nash went to Vince McMahon and said, you know, Vince, I want to stay, but I got this offer from WCW. And at first, McMahon just didn't believe him. And then <laughs> Nash produced the offer 
and it was like sticker shock. It was like, you know, you know, good luck. Good luck, Kevin, on your, you know, WCW. And he, he meant it. I mean, I heard that he, Nash and McMahon bumped into each other at an airport, like right in the middle of the wrestling war and had a very cordial conversation. But, you know, I mean, Vince is like, hey, you know, good congratulations. Good for you. I can't give you this money. Yeah, I, I, from what I understand, they always like remain friendly, too. Um, as far as I know, but then, you know, when that happens, then Vince then realizes he has to kind of change his business model or his payroll model, whatever you would call it. And he does, just like you said, he starts offering guys downside guarantees, which he would not have done before. And maybe he also thought because he's seen how WCW could be mismanaged like all the time. He may have looked at it like, all right, him and Hall are going to get there. They're not going to like it. They're probably not going to use them properly. And they're probably going to try to get out of their contract and come back anyways. I don't know if that's exactly what he thought, but certainly WCW had already had a history of, you know, bungling a lot of stuff. So there was no reason to think that this would have been any different. It was, but we didn't know that at the time. You know, speaking of things we didn't know at the time, Eric Bischoff gets a lot of heat for not pushing Steve Austin, for not pushing Cactus Jack, for not pushing Chris Jericho, right? Chris Jericho, I was always high on. I always thought, okay, this guy could be huge. I, I said that when he was still in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I mean, as someone who who talked to people and got the newsletters and all that good stuff in 1995, I can tell you I did not see anyone predicting that Steve Austin was going to become what he eventually became. Mick Foley as WWF champion, that was another impossibility that happened. I mean... They brought him in. It worked. Obviously, Vince won the war. He knew how to use these guys. But, I mean, no one was saying that about Steve Austin and Mick Foley in, like, 95, 96. No, I, and I love both those guys, and I was a huge, stunning Steve Austin fan. I love stunning Steve Austin. And he ended up, obviously, being, I, I thought he would have been a big star in WCW, but I never, ever, ever would have predicted that he would have become what he actually became. It's not like Vince signed him and said, I'm going to have you shave your head and become a Stone Cold Steve Austin. No. So it's not like Vince was like, like, he's a genius, but it wasn't like he was a genius in that respect. A lot of times these guys come up with their own thing, and Vince says, okay, we'll try it. And it ended up working at this point, in this case. So they were never going to push that type of character in WCW at that time anyways. And at, to be fair, St Steve Austin probably didn't realize he was going to become Stone Cold until it actually kind of happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, Steve Austin, you know, he, Austin tells the story about, you know, how he felt stuck in the WWF. He had Ted DiBiase as his manager. Ted DiBiase as a manager sounded like the greatest thing ever when they first started doing it because Steve, you know, DiBiase was a great talker as a wrestler, but as a manager, it just never clicked for him. It, it, I was very surprised when six months into it, I'm like, this guy sucks. But as soon as Austin got away from that whole gimmick, the whole, you know, Ted DiBiase doing the talking while Steve just stands there and the million dollar champion gimmick. You know, then and I will tell you right now, when I saw Steve Austin with his head shaved for the first time. I was like, this guy totally blew it. I mean, and Austin tells the story. He's like, yeah, I watched Pulp Fiction. I saw Bruce Willis with a crew cut, and I decided to get one. And in the words of Dave Meltzer, and I agreed, when he shaved his head, he shaved his charisma, and we were all wrong. Yeah, he, he shaved his charisma, but he got a whole new charisma that <laughs> replaced his old charisma. So it ended up working out for him. But yeah, I thought the same thing. Like when he shaved his head, I wasn't like, wow, this is going to be amazing. I just thought like, all right, well, we'll see what happens now. But yeah, he, he proved everybody wrong. <laughs> that was me being stuck in the 80s, okay, where, you know, guys had these you know crazy heads of hair and I just hadn't smartened up to the idea that you know hey it's the 90s now things have changed and Austin just he he got over like crazy with that look I if not everyone's going to know who Jay Buhner is but Jay Buhner was an outfielder for the Seattle Mariners and I'm like okay why does this guy want to look like Jay Buhner and I thought it was going to be a flop. I have no problem telling you that when Brett, uh, Steve Austin was announced as Bret Hart's opponent for Survivor Series 1996, I was like, 
This, you know, I love him. He's I loved him since he was in world class, but I don't think he has the star power to headline Survivor Series 96. And Steve proved me wrong. And, and he and Brett had a hell of a match that night. Yeah. Great rivalry, too. I guess we, we were all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, we were all wrong, but like we were like, you know, supposedly the the super smart fans who, you know, thought they knew everything. And apparently we just got this prediction way wrong on Austin. But let me get back to uh, Kevin Nash. I mean, the NWO, when they did it, they didn't know who the third member was going to be until literally the match went into the ring. Hulk Hogan's like, oh, all right, I'll turn heel when it was really obvious that, you know, he should have. And it worked. What would you have thought? What would you think, Chris, if they had gone, if Hogan's like, no, I'm not turning as they go, as they're going to the ring and Sting had become the third member of the NWO? How do you feel that would have gone? Not as well. And I love Sting. Um, but Hogan, even though Hogan in WCW was not nearly the same Hogan we saw in WWF even five or ten years earlier, or whatever it was, he was already starting to kind of get like booed and stuff. But he's still Hulk Hogan, for God's sake. So I, I, to have him be the third guy, nobody else could have fit that bill better. Um, it would have been good with Sting. I don't know how much mileage they would have gotten out of it. And I, I don't know how engaged Sting would have been in that heel character because they've, they've tried to turn him heel multiple times, whether it was in TNA or even WCW at one point, and he just it didn't fit for him because he's almost like a lifelong babyface, almost like... Not just like Steamboat, but almost like Steamboat. Like, you can't turn Sting heel. You just can't. Hogan, was it was easier to do because people hated him already anyways. Yeah, and not only that, but, like, I mean, every, you know, Hulk Hogan was literally a household name, and, and Sting wasn't even close. And just the absolute shock, even though, you know what? I mean, if I were not a newsletter person, I may have seen a potential turn coming because... On Nitro, you had people on camera tearing up Hulk Hogan merchandise. You know, the, the it's not what the the WCW fans of the South wanted to see. But now you've got Hogan in the heel role, and now you're getting WWF fans who are like, "Oh, who's this? You know, this cool new version of Hulk Hogan." I mean, what I'm saying is Hulk Hogan turning was an absolute shock. It was a shock as I was watching it. And I knew it was going to happen. I mean, once, you know, Hogan came to the ring late, I'm like, oh, man, they're turning him. And when I actually saw it occur, it was still a shock, even though I know, again, I knew it was happening. Yeah, we. so I ordered that pay-per-view. I had a bunch of friends over. And when Hogan comes out, we're like, because uh, we, like, we're total marks. Like, we still love, like, good guys or whatever. We cheer for some bad guys. We still love the baby faces. So Hogan comes out, and we're like, oh, thank God. Thank God Hogan's here to save the day. Oh, no. <laughs> and we're like in our 20s. Like, we should know better at that point. So when he dropped the leg on Savage, we're like, oh, my God. Like, our, the whole apartment, we were just, like, losing our minds. We could not believe it because I had joked about it, like, a week before. I'm like, I bet Hogan's the third guy, knowing it was never going to happen. Like, Hogan would never do that. And then when he did, it's like, oh, my God. It took us, like, hours for us to, like, process what, what had just happened. We're like, oh, so what, what happens now? What what do we do? What is, where does WCW go now? Hulk Hogan just turned bad. We could not believe it. And it's, I still watch that, um, that segment from time to time. And I'm like, God, this was so amazing. I, this was such a great time in pro wrestling. It was so kick-ass. It was just great. Just perfect. It was something I never thought I would see because I was of the opinion that pro wrestling's glory days of the 1980s when Vince took one company national and you know set all kinds of records and you know made again made Hogan a household name for a, a to a lesser extent Piper and Savage and I I didn't think the night what happened in the 90s was even remotely possible but you know thank and and the first step really was well the first step was Bischoff getting a show in primetime which and I thought and I was like this is the dumbest person imaginable he wants his wrestling show on on the only night where he's going to have competition and instead he turned the and he 
I look not to overcredit Bischoff, but I mean he knew what he was doing by going head to head with WWF. He was starting a wrestling war, and that's what would get people talking. Yep, and then having and also I want to clarify neither neither you or myself we're not rel- we're not related to Eric Bischoff either. So how do you know I'm not related <laughs> to Eric Bischoff? I, I apologize. I'm assuming you're not. Um, <laughs> but that that first Nitro when they have Lex Luger walk out, I mean that was obviously it was not as big as Hogan turning heel, but that was really really big because nobody had any. And I didn't read the newsletters, and I'd be willing to bet that most people that watch wrestling did not read newsletters at that time. So when Luger come out, Luger came out. We had no idea that his contract with WWF was up. We're just like, holy crap, Lex Luger's in WCW again. And I've always preferred Lex Luger in WCW anyway, so for me it was great. But yeah, he fired the first shot by having Luger come out, and they just kept firing more and more shots as that Monday Night War wore on. Especially that first year and a half when he was just bringing out new guys all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, and again, Bischoff looked at things differently. Like people are critical because Hulk Hogan and uh, Hogan versus Goldberg was given away on free TV, right? And first of all, there was really no pay per view where you could place that match. I mean, they had the NBA guys coming in, and you know, you would either have to put Hogan Goldberg off until it, it totally cooled off. Or you could have a fantastic television moment where you have people at home saying, hey, I can't miss Monday Nitro. Sure. And people still talk about it now. So obviously it was it was not a bad idea. I mean, maybe I think had, it's not like it's not like had they put that on a pay-per-view. It's not like it would have kept WW in business another year or another month or another day. They were still going to go out of business no matter what. Because I know some people point to that like, oh, this is, you know, this is a bad, bad decision on their part. I'm like... Really, is it, though, in the long run? Probably not. It got a lot of people watching the show. Obviously, they popped a huge rating at the time. And again, people people still talk about it now. Like, anytime you see, like, a Goldberg montage or whatever on WWE TV, they always show him winning the belt from Hogan, like, every single time. So it's, it's just a part of wrestling history at this point. Yeah, and it also shows how well Eric Bischoff had positioned all of the pieces. It's like, look, I have so many potential uh not maybe not great in the ring matches but matches that people want to see i don't have to save them all for the pay-per-view i can put some on nitro and you know nitro was like um before nitro came on it was like okay you know the battlefields in wrestling were the pay-per-views and to a lesser extent the arena shows now the battleground is drawing ratings on monday night and you know eric felt like he couldn't hold anything back and he didn't and it worked right and especially when you look at that roster that they had at that time and i just because i used to play the nintendo 64 wcw nwo revenge game all the time there was literally like 10 or 15 dream matches just with that roster that he had. So he couldn't put it all on pay-per-view. He had to put stuff like it, like Goldberg and Hogan on Nitro. He did Goldberg and Sting on Nitro at one point. It's like he, he just, the amount of talent they had was just unbelievable. I, I don't think it's ever been equaled since maybe early 2000s WWE. Um, but certainly at that time, like if you look at the 98 WWE roster, it's un, unfucking believable how many people they have. It really is. And not only did they have people on the roster, they this is so great. It's, it's one of the things that probably led to the demise of WCW. But you had, I don't, want, I don't know if dozens is the right word, but at least a couple of dozen guys whose job it was, was to walk to their mailbox every two weeks and pick up a check. You had guys like, you know, best example I can think of, Bobby Eaton. Uh, or Lanny Poffo, there's a bunch of guys that, you know, Eric signed to a contract and just let him sit at home because he didn't want the WWF or ECW using these guys. And it's like, you know, it worked for everyone, I guess, except for WCW in the end. In the end, exactly. Yeah, because they, they were just paying guys to stay home or to just keep them away, just like you said, keep them away from the other companies. It's like, I, I don't know if this is really the best business practice, but it's not my company, so you guys, you can do whatever you want. Uh, I mean, he looked at it as, look, you know, for three grand a week or whatever it was for one guy. So let's say for 20 guys, that's 60 grand a week. He saw it as a good investment because it kept it kept WWF at number two. Yeah, true. Good point. That's true. All right. Well, uh, let's talk about it. We mentioned Lex Luger debuting on Nitro. 
Chris, no one knew that was coming. I mean, including the people in the WWF, supposedly, like everyone was like, what is going on here? Like, I certainly didn't know. And no one I knew was aware that Lex Luger was debuting on Nitro. But once again, you know, the first show, they made a huge impression with that. And believe it or not, people, and some of you won't, Hulk Hogan had never wrestled Lex Luger. Lex Luger had been in the business for just just about exactly 10 years, uh, Labor Day 1985. Their paths had never crossed, and people looked at Hogan and Luger as a dream match. And guess what? Week two of Monday Nitro, you're getting it for free. Yeah, and I had to work that next Monday night, so I like... I had to like put post-it notes all over my house to remind my wife at that time to remember to record the show because I don't know how to use the VCR recorder, whatever thing, um, where you can set it. So <laughs> I, I didn't know how to set the thing. Um, it's not like it is now. Um, so I'm like, please remember to record this match. And then the match was like not anything to be impressed by, but it's still it's like Hulk Hogan and Lex Luger on free TV. This is ridiculous. I would never have imagined this would ever happen. I, right now. Sir, I am picturing you as the guy, like, I walk into his living room, and I look at his VCR, and he's got the, the 12 o'clock thing blinking on the VCR because he doesn't know how to set it. <laughs> I didn't learn how to do that till like, years later. But, yeah, I, I'm just, like, I told I'm like my wife, I'm like, please, please don't forget to record Monday Nitro. I don't care about Raw. I can watch it another time. But you got to record Nitro. And then I watched it, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. I didn't need to see that. <laughs> but, again, it was still a huge match. You can't really miss it. No, it was a huge match. I think people, you know, if you weren't a wrestling fan in the 80s or 90s, I mean, you, you don't get it. But that was, I, it was literally a WrestleMania-type dream match. I'm not kidding. Like, a WrestleMania main event, you know, I could have easily seen Hulk Hogan defending against Lex Luger, and it's free on Nitro. So, again, you know, Eric, one thing I've always respected about Eric, he didn't come from the wrestling business and that, that is good in some ways and bad in some ways. In a, a good way, he just saw it from a fresh perspective that, look, cable television is king. Yep, absolutely. And that just like sometimes it's good to come in with a fresh set of eyes because if you've been doing the professional wrestling business for the past however many years, that's all you've ever known. So you're just going to do what you've already, always known for the past 20, 30 years. Whereas he came in from the outside. He's like, well, this is fine. Well, how about we do it like this? You know what I mean? Something different. And it worked. Well, let me let me tell everyone a non-wrestling story that can be applied to wrestling, okay? I managed a store at the Pheasant Lane Mall in Nashua in the late 80s, early 90s, right? And I got a new district manager, and the guy walks in, good guy, but he's like, you got to take care of that eyesore on the wall. And what he meant by eyesore is there was a... a a piece of paint that had come off that was probably a little bit bigger than a postage stamp. And I, I had been there every day and I saw it every day. So because I saw it every day, I didn't notice it. And this guy, fresh set of eyes, walks in and like within half an hour, he's like, take care of that eyesore. And he went out and bought, bought a poster and put it over it. <laughs> yep, that's good. That's true. All right. We can't talk about Nash in WCW without talking about the finger poke of doom. They had been building up a Hogan versus Nash match for weeks. The NWO had broken up. It was, you know, number one, a against number one B and they did the finger poke of doom to this day, everyone involved. Okay. We're talking, I've heard from Hogan. I've heard from Nash. I've heard from Bischoff that it wasn't that big a deal that, you know, fans didn't get upset. I can tell you from my experience as knowing normal people who watch WCW, not newsletter fans and all that stuff, they were beyond pissed. They were, it wasn't just, um, you know, okay, I was looking forward to this match and this one dumb thing happened. It was like they gave up on the promotion. They really felt like they had been taken in and it wasn't like, oh, the bad, look at the bad guys did. They suck. They were like, no, WCW sucks. And I really think despite what, you know, all those people say, oh, it wasn't a big deal. I can tell you based on the people that I talked to. And again, once again, not newsletter people, People were enraged. And what are your thoughts, Chris, about the finger poke of doom? So, I, again, at that time, I wasn't a newsletter reader. My buddy and I watched that Nitro. Like, we were flipping between that and Raw. And we're watching 
this thing unfold, and then the figure poker doom happens, and then they put the NWO back together. And we weren't angry. We were just kind of like, are they really doing this again? Because this has been like three years that this angle's been going on. And we just said, okay, we're, we didn't stop watching WCW, but we're just kind of like, okay, well, obviously we don't need to focus on this promotion right now. We're just going to follow WWF for a little bit. Cause like, that was just, I don't want to say it was a slap in the face, but it was just kind of like, come on guys, is this, 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 that's the best idea you can come up with. And it would have been fine. It would have been, I should say it would have been fine, but it would have been better had Goldberg actually gotten like his revenge and won the title, which is kind of what I thought they were building towards. And instead, that never happened. They ended up going with a feud with Hogan and Flair, which we had seen for the past four years. So, no, I, I was not angry, but I it didn't make me want to watch the show at all, that's for sure. Slap in the face is a good way of looking at it. I, I, I will confess, I was not watching it live. I was you know recording it and doing something else, and then I heard about it. But, I mean, yeah, slap in the face is a good way of looking at it. Now, well, you brought up Goldberg. One thing that Kevin Nash gets criticized for is he sometimes used his influence not only to keep himself on top of the card, but also to keep anyone who was a threat to that spot held down. He would you know, intentionally, it's been said, sabotage other guys' careers like Goldberg. You know, the, the joke going around is... Hogan, Hall, and Nash all have enough pull individually and certainly collectively to make sure that the wrong guy outside of their clique or whatever you want to call it did not – they wanted to make sure the wrong guy didn't get over. I'll say this. I don't fault anybody for doing what they need to do to keep themselves on top because if you're on top, you're making the most money, and I get that. The problem is is that somebody, like in this case it would be Eric Bischoff, Somebody has to police that. So even if even if Nash says, "Hey, you know, he hit," I don't know how booking works. I've never booked anything. You obviously know more than I do. But like, let's say Nash submits his format to Bischoff and says, "Hey, I'm going to go over this guy, this guy, this guy." It's up to Bischoff because he's in charge. It's up to him to say, "Okay, no, we're not going to do that." And here's why. And let's try to do something else because not only is this not a good idea, but you're going to piss off half the locker room or the most of the locker room, which doesn't like you as it is anyways. So, yes, I, I do think that they probably did a lot of politicking. And on one hand, I get it. On the other hand, it is kind of douchebaggish. But it's up to either Vince or Eric, whoever they're working for, to put their foot down and say, no, we're not doing that. And th- that, I always put the blame on whoever's in charge. So, yes, Nash may have been Booker, or Nash may have had influence, or Hall, or whoever. It doesn't matter. But ultimately, it falls on one guy, and that's Bischoff. And he should have said, you know what, this is a really shitty idea. Let's not do a figure poker doom. Let's maybe do something else. Or push this match to another time. So that's on him, more than it would be on the talent. I, I agree with you. No, that, that that's what you're here for, to, to give opinions. And that, that practice is as old as the wrestling game itself. You either, you know, if, if you are the booker or you are someone who has a lot of influence in the company, you will either A, make sure no one gets over more so than you, or B, if someone's really getting over, attach yourself to that person. You know, um, best example I can think of when Sting was red hot in 88 Guess who's teaming with Sting at, at Starcade? It's Dusty Rhodes. What do you know? Exactly. Dusty um, would attack. Yep, absolutely. Yep. But one thing Talon could do, and Nash did it. They did this thing. Brian Pillman was getting over like crazy in WCW as, you know, oh, my God, is this guy completely out of control in real life, right? The loose cannon. Well, Hogan tries to bury Pillman by booking him as part of like a two on seven cage match and built Bishop and all of a sudden Pillman's ankle hurts too badly to do that. It's funny when Pillman does it, I laugh, right? No, he's, he's just protecting himself. When Nash did it with the giant, you know, he beats the giant. Then Paul white is supposed to get his win back. And all of a sudden, Kevin Nash's back is it hurts too badly to do the match. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I laugh when Pillman does it, and when Nash does it, I'm like, hey, that's not fair. Right. No, and that was bullshit that he did that. I agree. He should he should have put him or do whatever he was supposed to do. He listen. He did some bullshit stuff. I'm not going to say he's faultless, but some of the stuff is just kind of like I don't want to say blown out of proportion, but it's like you know, it's not necessarily the whole story type thing. 
No, I, I agree with you. And you know, one of the things you know, I I mentioned that. I mentioned that uh, Kevin Nash was like universally hated by the newsletters. And one reason why he was sometimes a wrestling fan will listen to a wrestler or someone in the business and they will give that person. I'm not saying don't respect their opinion. Of course, respect their opinion, but a disproportionate amount of credit to that. It's almost like you're being, you know, you're being told from the heavens above what the story is. And I can tell you with wrestlers, that's no, not always a hundred percent of the case. You know, there are wrestlers that, I mean, I, I've known guys in the business who have just come up with crazy ideas and, and, but one thing they, they, the, the guys in the business resented Nash for is, and this was becoming common in the eighties. I mean, Lex Luger did this and a lot of people resented it for resented him for it before him. I'm trying to think like Ed Gantner, Ron Simmons did the same thing. They were uh, sting. Perfect example. They were not wrestling fans. They knew very little about the wrestling business, but because of their look, they got a big push in the wrestling business. And Nash was another one of these guys. He is working a strip club in Atlanta, not as a stripper, but as a bouncer slash manager. And some guy, you know, was someone, a place where guys from WCW would frequent, including uh, some management. And they see this guy who's again, legit six ten in a bodybuilder and like, Hey, you should get in the wrestling business. And four years later, he's the top guy in the business. He's the, the WWF champion. I mean, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like the resentment that guys like Sting Luger and Nash would get from the guys who had been in the business. I think, okay, this is multifaceted. So I think you can't begrudge somebody like for me, at least can't begrudge somebody becoming successful if they weren't a fan of it to begin with. Some, maybe they just didn't like wrestling or whatever the situation may have been. <sighs> Let me word this properly without sounding like a, an asshole. At, sure. the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, being a wrestler, it's a job. That's all it is. And when these guys came in just looking at it like a job, I'm sure wrestlers that have put their lives into it and have maybe their second generation, maybe their third generation, and they've dedicated their life to professional wrestling and they see some guy come in that worked at a strip club, and not only that, he's getting a big push, and he's getting big money, and now he's the world champion. If I put myself in their shoes, I get it. I understand. But guys like Nash and Luger and Sting probably had more of the right idea. They looked at it like, this is a way to make money, and that's it. And you can't fault them for that, because you can't pay bills just saying, hey, I really like being a wrestler. You have to be successful at it, too, and you have to make money at it. I, I Me, personally, I, it's cooler to talk to a wrestler than actually was a fan growing up. But at the same time, I don't begrudge them or I don't cast aspersions on them if they weren't fans before they got into wrestling. Especially if they got into wrestling and they were actually actually successful, even if they weren't fans, but they still became successful. That means they tried hard at something, whether it's Lex Luger just looking really good. Same with Sting. Now, and I think all three of those guys we mentioned, Sting, Luger, and Nash, they all became good to great pro wrestlers. So it's not like they just came in, got a bunch of money, and didn't do jack crap. Like, they tried to improve their um, their wrestling as time went on. So as a fan, I don't really care, but I could see as somebody that's been in the business, like if somebody's been, uh, like I said before, if they apply their whole life and they've grown up watching wrestling and wanting to be a wrestler, and they finally get there and then they see some stripper, some stripper, <laughs> some strip club guy come in and like take their spot. If I put myself in their shoes, I absolutely understand. But I'm not in their shoes, so I, I don't get it. But I get it, if that makes sense. Well, um, I get it. I get both sides of it. I mean, Michael Hayes grew up putting up rings in Pensacola. And him and Robert Gibson were doing that. And he said getting into the wrestling business used to be like getting into the mafia. Okay. All right, I've known this kid for two or three years. He puts up the ring. He, he's not a problem child. I will train him, okay? And that's how Michael Hayes got in the business. Same thing with you know a lot of guys, Robert Gibson. And they see literally like five or six years later, Lex Luger just gets gets you know gets introed into the door without you know, having to pay his dues per se. I've, the whole I've paid my dues thing can be ridiculous with wrestlers. I know guys who are in the business for six weeks. Hey, brother, I've paid my dues. You know, 
and I've seen it happen, and but I get it. You know, Michael Hayes did pay his dues, but the business changed, and I think a lot of guys really resented that. But again, hey, what am I going to tell you? Uh, since the beginning of time, there have been wrestlers who have gotten pushed based on nothing but their appearance. They were terrible in the ring. We're talking guys like Sky High Lee, Haystacks Calhoun, Earl Maynard. I mean, they sucked. They were beyond terrible, but they had that look, so they got the push. Yep, and that, you know, if you're a promoter, and like, as an example, say you're a promoter, and you've been a promoter, and you have somebody that says like, hey man, I've been working really hard, I've been setting up the ring, and I'm doing this, that, and the other thing, I'm working these shows, this, that, and the other, and this big six-foot Eight guy comes in, you give him a push right away. It's like, listen, I appreciate the fact that you've been helping set up the ring and do stuff like that. But fans aren't paying to see people that set up the ring. They're not going to say, oh, this guy set up the ring. Let's go see him wrestle. They're going to say, Jesus Christ, this guy's seven feet tall. We got to go watch him. So, again, if I'm in the business, I can understand the resentment. Outside the business, I, I, I don't understand. You know, Chris, I don't know if you've ever been around a guy who is like six feet ten or even bigger than that. I, I have. I ran to a couple of the Celtics at the Burlington Mall once. It is an amazing sight. And Kevin Nash was an amazing sight. I mean, you, you know, six foot ten, you're looking up at the sky at the guy. And I'm, I'm an even six feet, so it's not like I'm tiny. And just, it, it's amazing. What was it like when you met Nash? Well, he was sitting down when I met him. So it wasn't as impressive. But he's really big. He didn't stand up when you walked up to the table? Can you believe okay. that? No. I thought he would have jumped up when he saw me. No. he. Um, I, I met him twice. He was sitting down both times. And I just put that to, down to the fact that, you know, he's a little older. And it may, <laughs> may not be as easy yeah, to stand up for a long knees. period of time. And he had bad knees anyways going in. Exactly. So, no. He's still, he, I mean, you could tell he's huge. But he, I, I couldn't get a perfect glance because he, he was sitting down. <laughs> now, when you were watching Nitro in 95, when Nash debuted, A, did you know he was coming in? I'm, I'm going to guess no, but I'll ask anyway. And B, what was your reaction when he just showed up and put Bischoff, like powerbombed Eric Bischoff? Okay, I, I actually did know he was coming in. Not because I read the newsletters. I was one of those suckers that paid that... Uh, called the Mean Gene Hotline, which I'm still paying off ah. to this day. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know there was an observer or anything else. I'm like, oh, I'll call Mean Gene. That'll give me some great info. So I, I knew that he was coming in when he, but when he did the power bomb to Bischoff, like all of us, my friends and I were like, wow, because we'd never seen like a um, a figurehead or a president or whatever. Because this is like two years or a year before Austin stunning McMahon every week. We'd never seen anything like that. And we're like, holy shit, was that... We knew it wasn't real, but we're like, did Nash get pissed or something? (laughs) Did did Bischoff not pay him enough or something? So that was pretty amazing. That was an awesome angle, the way they set that up. That was great. I thought it was. I thought it absolutely was. The first time I ever saw an authority figure really attacked was when Ric Flair and Roddy Piper got into it, and Piper accidentally hit Vince McMahon with a chair, and he saw McMahon get stretchered out and i did i heard about it but then when i saw it on tv i was like oh my god this is the angle they they've been saving this angle up forever and they were waiting for the right guy to come in and to do that with mcmahon and it was flair yeah that was a, that was a great angle too that was fantastic Kevin Nash has a podcast. I learned this about 24 hours uh, before we recorded, so I did not have the opportunity to listen to it. I am definitely going to sample it. Kevin's, a, you know, he's a smart guy. You know, now, like I said, he is now being praised by some people as the smartest man in the history of the business. Have you listened to his podcast, Chris? Yes, I have. I've listened to every episode. However, it is not nearly as good as Stick to Wrestling. But, it, but, but <laughs> what is? Let's be honest with ourselves. But um, it, it's it's good. I mean, I've heard like he's done 157 shoot interviews, so I thought I had heard all these darn stories before. But actually, he it, the show's actually really good. To be honest, it's actually a really good podcast. If you're oh, if you're not yeah if you're not a Nash fan, which you are, I mean you're not going to enjoy it. But I think if you like him, you're going to enjoy it more. Obviously, yeah, it's a, it's a good show. I'm a wrestling fan, and if someone can sit down and talk about you know what they went through and put some new perspective on something, I'm all over it, man. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. All right. Chris, you have been an absolutely fantastic 
guest once again on Stick to Wrestling. Any final thoughts that you might want to share on Kevin Nash or, or really anything else? I, I want to share my story about when I met Kevin Nash this past March, if that's okay. Yeah, I want it. Okay. So I went to Chillicothe, Ohio this past March. Have you heard of Chillicothe, Ohio? Only because Bobby Fulton's from there. And that's who was running this event. So <laughs> otherwise I never heard of it. So they had some like big fan fest type thing. So a bunch of us met up in Chillicothe, Ohio to go meet Kevin Nash and maybe Tully Blanchard and Ricky Steamboat. So this guy, Mark and I were waiting in line and we're waiting in line for like a while. And I'm like, who's, we didn't know what line we were in. because so it was a little disorganized. It wasn't too bad, but I go to the guy in front of me. I'm like, who's, what line is this for? He's like, Oh, it's Kevin Nash. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll wait. So it takes forever. I'm like, what is going on? So I finally get up to where I'm like, right next to I'm just about to go meet him and he's actually taking time to talk to like every single person so I was going to say that's what that's what the wait was for yes so I get up to him and I don't want this isn't going to be a sad story I promise so I, I get up there and I'm oh. like uh, I'll take the um yeah sorry I'm like I'll take the diesel picture if he could sign that he's like all right he starts signing it i go you know and i felt embarrassed to even do this but i did anyways i go you know you did a cameo for my dad last year um, before he died, and I just wanted to say that I, it really meant. To, and right when I said that, he immediately looks up at me and like makes eye contact, which to me I, that's a, a big deal. Looks at me, listens to my whole pathetic little spiel. I'm like, you know, my dad really appreciated it, and I, I appreciate you doing that for me. So thank you. And he's like, I'm sorry for your loss. He shook my hand. We did a picture and everything. And then I'm like, okay, well, we're. I'm like, this is pretty kick ass, but we're gonna go. So he talked to Mark and I for like another three or four minutes, and we were just sitting there like bullshitting with him, just talking about nothing. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. And he didn't have to do that. And he said to me, he goes, I have, and I'm this kind of bullshit, but he's like, I've spent the last 30 years going from airports to hotels to arenas, back to the hotel, back to the airport. He's like, I never talked to anybody. And now I actually have a chance to talk to people. And I'm like, man, <laughs> this guy, and Mark is not a fan of Nash. He's like, holy shit, Kevin Nash was awesome. I'm like, yeah, dude, I told you, <laughs> he's great. <laughs> I that was That was one of my favorite wrestling meetings that I've had because sometimes people and not because they're dicks it's just they got to sign and get people out of there because there's so many people he actually took the time to talk to everybody including me so I have Nash is one of my favorites of all time forever and ever well I'm, I'm glad to hear that um like I was around the guy I thought he was very funny I was around him briefly in the year 2000 or was it 2001 I don't know but yeah he seemed like a, he seemed like who he was on tv just a cool funny dude and Chris, what you said, I think should go a long way with people. Like a lot of the time, if you want to, if I mean, I can tell you, I did this in the eighties and nineties. Sometimes the best way to approach a wrestler is start talk, just start bullshitting with them about something that's not wrestling. Like I started talking to Ric Flair about the Lakers. And next thing I know it's 40 minutes later and I'm still talking to Ric Flair and we're, you know, talked, talk, we talked wrestling, but you know, we talked uh, Carolina hoops. We talked Lakers hoops. I confess that I was like a Celtics fan and he didn't throw me through the wall. So everything was good. <laughs> I, I tell people that too. I'm like, you know, I'm sure wrestlers like talking about wrestling, but I'm sure once in a great while they would rather talk about their other activities and maybe you could get them to be a little more engaging that way instead of just saying, I loved your match with Terry Funk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I met Ronnie Garvin with one of my friends. He's like, what do I say? I'm like, you know, and I told him, look, you know, or he was all excited about it. And I was like, look, you know, don't walk up to him and expect him to tell you, you know, you a stranger, like anything about the inside mechanisms of pro wrestling. That's not how it goes, at least until they know you a little bit or they see they see that you know someone in the business and that they're cool with you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's great. I, yeah. Like if I meet wrestlers at like conventions now, like I never use any like insider lingo or anything like that. Cause I'm like, well, I'm not really part of this. So I always try to be like really respectful. And then if they want to like tell me stuff, it's like, okay, great. But otherwise I'm just like, ah, oh, you're a really good wrestler. And I leave it at that. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll leave it with this. I, I was in Philly with a guy in 1990, 1988, and he sees Tully Blanchard. He goes, hey, Tully, who are you working with tonight? And I was like, oh, no, no. <laughs> oh. And he's like, well, I'm wrestling whoever. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I'm no chance of hanging out with Tully after that. Chris, once again, thank you for coming on. It was a fantastic hour that went by way too quick. Thank you for having me. I, I liked how our talk split into other WCW stuff because I'm a huge WCW fan. So it was a great talk. And I, you know, I love talking to you guys. It's awesome. I once again want to thank our guest, Chris Zauha, who did a great job talking about Kevin Nash. I thought it was a really interesting show. And once again, you know what? Studio audience, let's hear it for Chris. What a great job. Yeah, you guys are great. Thank you. And in closing, just last week, I told everyone I would be discussing our friend Richard O'Sullivan every week familiarizing you with the toxic pollution he's created in the internet wrestling community for so long. We're talking over 20 years. Well, the plan as of today is to never mention him again. And I'll tell you why. Hey, no booing. Do not boo me. I am the host of stick to wrestling. Do not boo me. I do not suck. I do not suck. Get out of here. Oh, leave. That's it. No more studio audience. Well, whose idea was it to have a studio audience here live? Um, I believe it was yours. That doesn't help me. But anyway, no more bit. No more jokes. I'm going to be serious now, okay? I did say I was going to discuss Mr. O'Sullivan every week. And the plan, as of today, is to never mention him again. And let me tell you why. Believe it or not, Richard and I have mutual friends. I know that's shocking. And one of those people recently reached out to me and said, I shouldn't pick on Richard. Like, I shouldn't call him out on his atrocities. And like, what do you mean I shouldn't? And he's just like, well, it's like you're, phys- it's like you're picking on someone who needs a cane to walk with. And I'm like, What? And he says something along the lines of that from a mental wellness standpoint, Richard is as sick as a person with a serious physical ailment that is so severe they cannot, they are not completely ambulatory and thus need the services of a cane just to get around. That's how mentally and emotionally weak he is. And I disagreed. If you're going to use that analogy, Richard doesn't need a cane. He's in a coma and he's on a ventilator. But my friend made his point. He asked me how I would feel if Richard hurt himself. And my initial reaction was fine. You see a cockroach crawling on the floor, you stomp on it. And then I thought about it. And there is evidence that Richard really, truly is unwell. Severely unwell and on the edge enough so that I cannot rule out that one of these segments might push him over the edge. And at the end of the day, I don't want to be connected to something like that. So I'm going to stop doing these segments. And what can I say? Let's all just hope that Richard needs to get gets the help that... It certainly appears that he needs. Who am I kidding? Who am I trying to kid? This guy in his mid-50s is suddenly going to realize that he has the world's thinnest skin and is beyond unstable, has been a complete embarrassment his entire life, and he's just going to up and say, I've been a mess for a long time now, and today's the day I get the help I need. Yeah, right. So what happens next? Well, nowadays, especially if you live in the United States, you know this, there's a lot of talk in our society about red flags and how we need to intervene with a person waving their red flags before something really bad happens. Richard O'Sullivan is a walking, breathing red flag. He waves the biggest, reddest flags I have ever seen. So here's what we all need. Here's what I need from you, dear listener, for the greater good. I don't know how to report, for lack of a better term, a person who is constantly displaying unstable, sometimes flat-out psychotic behavior. So I need one of you to walk me through how to do that. 
It doesn't have to be a public thing. Just send me a direct message or an email helping instruct me on how to do this. I, I don't know anything. I don't know. Richard lives in New York City. I don't know if this goes through the state of New York, the city, the cops. I have no idea how to help this person, right? So if I could at least have someone, you know, it couldn't be a bad idea to have someone speak and evaluate Richards. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong, but I think we'll all be better off if a mental health professional could evaluate him. I'm not going to do this right away because Richard seems to be doing better now than he was a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago. But if someone could get me that information, I'd greatly appreciate it having it on hand because if Richard gets really crazy again and starts waving those red flags, we'll at least have a game plan. Now, Richard, I'll leave you with this. I know you think you're off the grid. Maybe you're right. And maybe it doesn't matter. But remember that detective service I spoke about last week? They guarantee they will find anyone for $79.99. Now, my immediate response is, God, I have better things to spend 80 bucks on. But you know what? Maybe I don't. Maybe helping you would be the best thing for me to spend $80 on. So... I mean, I know you're saying, like I said, you think you're off the grid, but this company's slogan is everyone is somewhere. I like that. That's clever. This guy can find missing persons, abducted children, etc. that the FBI can't find. I'll let you finish that sentence, Richard. If he can find people that the FBI can't find, you know the rest. And that's it. That wraps up Stick to Wrestling this week. I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope you're back next week. I hope you enjoyed the show with Chris. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this this podium. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this show. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.